I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Hello and welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I am Khalil and with me today is the contortionist jazz to my exotic dance. Oh, oh, um, huh. Please state your name, sir. I'm the Unplugged Professor. I'm, hmm, oh, I think I like my end of the title, but I don't like the full title. So you could say that this is the night of decision for you. Um, whether I like it or not, I'm sure, but that makes every night a night decision. So it sounds as though you have a split opinion here, as though perhaps this is an episode embodying the very idea of indecisiveness. Like you are questioning me and emphasizing words. I'm looking around for a camera and I don't see one yet. We're talking about episode 28, an episode so polarizing it has two different accepted names. Oh, okay. One is the night of decision. This was the title that was given during the rebroadcast from 1996. Super foreboding. Got it. But then the fans were like, no, we don't like that name as much. And they have their own name. They call it Miss Twin Peaks. <laughs> and this title became so famous, it is used in official capacities from thenceforth. It was used on the CBS website, and it's also the current name used on Netflix. So whether it's The Night of Decision or Miss Twin Peaks, we leave it up to you. We're going to call it Miss Twin Peaks. Okay, very well. I think I prefer the night one, just because it feels more foreboding. Mm -hmm. Miss Twin Peaks, I'm wondering how other titles would be if it were just so simple. Just having one episode being literally called Little Nicky Here or Fish in the Percolator There. I think sometimes they'd be improvements, and sometimes <laughs> they'd be worse. Depends on the episode <laughs> when we're going through things. Okay. Uh, this episode is written by Barry Pullman, who also wrote episodes 12, 18, and 24. Okay, okay. And then this episode was directed by a certain Tim Hunter, who also directed episodes 4 and 16. 16 being the episode we infamously were not huge fans of. Okay. 4 being an episode we infamously thought was good. I'm trying to remember back then, but all these are numbers. They're all numbers. <laughs> So let's just go ahead and dive right in here. We have a log lady intro where she is talking about the very idea of the log, that a log is a portion of a tree. At the end of the crosscut log, many of you know this, there are rings. Each ring represents one year of life of the tree. How long it takes to grow a tree. Professor, have you ever grown a tree before? No. Professor, are you a tree? No. Professor, do you know any trees? Yes. You ever hugged a tree before? Yes. Would you date a tree? No. Would you be friends with a tree? Yes. Would you be friends with benefits with a tree? No. Would you be friends with costs with a tree? What? <laughs> Would you chop down a tree with your bare teeth? No. Would you chop down a tree with your bare axe? No. Would you chop down a tree with Dr. No. Hayward's chainsaw hands? No, no. Oh, God. If you had Dr. Hayward's chainsaw hands, would you chop down a tree I with them? I don't want to chop down trees. Okay. I'm okay with the tree standing up and looking beautiful. I think you've passed the log lady's test. What? I was being tested by the log lady? <laughs> yes. Oh. Those are all questions. I channeled I channeled that energy. You channeled the fictional log lady. Yes. Excellent. So the idea of rings representing time I think is interesting. We've got a little bit of ring iconography and imagery so far. Uh, not a super, super amount. I know that Cooper had a ring that disappeared early into season two, but it's like never been brought up again. And then we also had the ring 
infamously that Bob seemed to appear at in the last episode prior, mm -hmm. that sort of white ring with water inside. Yeah. So there is a bit of ring imagery happening. There's also the ring of trees that was by. And the owl cave symbol is kind of shown within a circular, like, area, I think, maybe. No. Maybe it's not. Well, it's on, like, a little a little outcropping posty thing that's circular. It's like a, like a, a tube. A, like a tube. A so, so there's some rings. Keep it, Keep an eye out for rings in the future or an ear. Sometimes ears have ringing. Well, honestly, uh, I think that they must have liked Twin Peaks. You know why? Why? Because they liked it. Wow. So they put a bunch of rings in it. That's just like Beyonce once said. Yep. Good yep. job. You know a song. Another one. <laughs> I am that is, the music expert. That is the now. music video that won for best music video by a female artist in the 2009 VMAs over Taylor Swift. Why are you trying to one-up me? I, because, I had something. Because that's I, when Kanye said, I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> so, Professor, in that spirit, I'm going to let you finish right now. But I want to talk about the log lady's husband's ashes. Oh, I, I'd want to talk what's below the ashes, personally. Let's talk about the ashes first, then what's below after. <laughs> so the husband's ashes are supposedly, allegedly, in this jar. I have no reason to doubt her, so I'm going to say that they are. They're okay. in a, on the mantelpiece, and uh, she basically says that there will never be a fire. Her fireplace is all boarded up. Yeah. Seemingly connected to the, to the, the, seemingly connected to the husband, maybe in some way, that his, his body was cremated. That implies fire. But uh, giant question marks on that right now. Yeah, no, it seems that there's kind of a little bit of a taboo with the fire from mm -hmm. what I come to understand, such as like the final things left behind by Laura Palmer. This is before are... the Internet. So before Flame Wars really started. <sighs> yes. So <laughs> <laughs> but Fire Walk With Me uh, has been a phrase that is big enough to have its own movie, which we'll get to eventually, yes. but still last remaining of Laura Palmer. And the mm. fact that now fire is boarded away, it seems that I, I'm curious on how far the fires will go. Well, we know that when Leland was talking about his experiences over, I think it was at a camp or whatever he mentioned, where there was that man who would flick matches at him and ask if he wanted to play with fire. And that's seemingly where he saw Bob before. Yeah, yeah. So there's also this affinity with Bob and fire, right? That keeps popping up a little bit here it, and there. It's It doesn't seem like so far fire is the nice thing. Oh, and I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's the opposite of wood. Indeed, but at the same time, um, it's kind of frightening to have something. I don't know. Seeing a fireplace boarded up freaks me out. And I'm not Santa Claus. Like, I have no mm -hmm. access or need for the fireplace it's just a f weird frightening image i don't want to overemphasize or over dig into it right now we don't really have enough to go off of but i do think it's interesting if we think about the idea of fire versus sort of a tree the wood element you can't have enough wood to stop fire fire just grows and consumes and eats oh we, so like we don't have any real world examples of that happening lately so i don't know what sort of context you're don't look at from. california ever don't, don't <laughs> just don't look because by the time if you're listening to this in the future it's probably the same don't look at california if you're listening to this from the present i hope you're okay and i hope that if you are in california you're especially okay yeah right that's terrible um and speaking Speaking of which, save save the planet, save nature. Message in the early 1990s of Twin Peaks. Uh, still save. prescient. Still prescient. So, yeah, I just think it's interesting because it's one of those forces that you can't, like, throw enough trees at fire to stop the fire. Fire just consumes. Tree is clearly the, the prey in the predator-prey situation. Um, and fire also is a symbol of warmth, though. So the boarded-up fireplace, sure, it keeps out the fire, I suppose, but you're boarding up the fireplace with wood and also that means your house isn't warm anymore i don't know there's things you can do with it there's things we could say about it the body was cremated that's curious 
I mean, around the early 90s, I'm sure that there's still a heater that can be provided. Like This is possibly true. We know Logley lives in the middle of nowhere with minimal technology, but it's not out of the question to believe she has some form of heater. I cannot listen to the words middle of nowhere without hearing in my head with their husband, Eustace Bag. I think that... If we were to have a Twin Peaks Courage the Cowley Dog spinoff, I think that the log lady would fit in really well. <laughs> she could have her own little episode, you know, where Courage misunderstands her and thinks she's scary, but she's actually really nice. No, seriously. I think that the only real character that would be fitting in a Courage the Cowardly Dog spinoff would probably be the log lady. Oh, but the only. But I, one I of the think best. the only. Okay, well, when the spinoff gets made, we'll judge for ourselves. <laughs> and then the last thing that I thought was really interesting was that the log lady says in the intro, many things I, I must not say. She says she doesn't mind telling us some things, but there are things she must not say. What do you think the things are that she can't say? And then why do you think she can't say them? Well, you see the grandfather above, David Lynch, looking up from the narrative skies, tells her, no, I'm sorry, omnipotent being, but that would be too much. Give some people some leeway, man. That's totally what uh, David Lynch from the sky sounds like, right? So is that your interpretation that the mustn't say is more of a meta commentary that the director... And writers can't reveal all their secrets because that would ruin the suspense or mystery. I think that from someone who has written before, making characters that know more than they probably should, there might be a full-on fear aspect of mm -hmm. it, um, an uncertainty on how others would react. Mm -hmm. So that's an area that I lean into almost as much as someone else from outside saying, you really can't say it too much with any story within the fiction how much do you think the log lady knows like do you think she's got a full like undertale level of meta awareness where oh. like she knows everything going on and like just can't say it for fear of breaking the time continuum here's the thing i think that the log lady knows more but i think the log knows most you know that's a fair assumption she does say the log is aware and that her log does tell her things that she can't even hear or see yeah because Think about the last commentary before. How does the experience of enjoying a robust strawberry compare mm -hmm. towards the feelings of a tree? There's Do you think the log dissonance. knows how the strawberry tastes? No. Because it's a log? No, that's that's the point. Yes, the distance between mm. realities. Fair enough. Do you think the log knows the fate of Leo Johnson? Um, I don't think anyone really knows mm -hmm. the fate of Leo Johnson, at least at this point. Because Wyndham Earl's got a couple shed buddies at the beginning of this episode. Leo Johnson and Major Briggs shackled with that lock mechanism we were seeing before, uh, finally put to use. Yes. But Leo Johnson, ever resourceful, uh, does reach over and grab the tantalizing key upon the table, uses it to free Major Briggs, and then do as much to free himself as he can. Wait, I didn't really see him try to free himself at all. He did. He, like, unshackled one of his shackles, I believe. There was something with that. From what I was impressed by was that he could have fully unshackled himself, too, but I think that there might have been just an acceptance of, mm. you know, everything with what is around his neck. He knows that he can't get out of the situation, but he at least wants to free Major Briggs. You know, that might so be that true. So may sh save Shelly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is quite intriguing, especially with his current... Mm -hmm state at the moment again well, there's i think your assumption that he wants major briggs to save shelly is spot on he does tell literally major briggs save shelly yep, yep. pretty pretty black and white there uh, can we dissect this in some way maybe shelly itself is uh communities and there is a need to save it but in order to save it you must burn it is that correct so winnemerl comes back he's a trifle miffed that uh, Leo Johnson had led to the escape of Major Briggs. And he appears slightly different than our usual encounters with Linda Merle in the past. 
how would you describe Windermere's appearance when he returns to the shed? Um, he he looks a little bit um spooky, a little bit scary, like a, a skeleton. Skeletons, mm. Yeah. Uh, so he got this white paint on his face. Oh, how do we know it's white paint? But that's the color. That, that's uh, the okay, shade. Okay. It is. What, what I'm trying to get at here, Khalil, is that is it literally white paint in the narrative, or is this supposed to be some sort of visual representation of something with Windermere? Could be either way. I'm inclined to believe white paint. Okay. I think it's not as drastic as an effect if it was something meant to be more. Uh, and then there's the black and the teeth, which that seems a little drastic to be just there like we go. he painted his teeth for a moment. Yep. Um, as yeah. you do. <laughs> Again, I'm suspicious of Wyndham Earl and what he is. Mm -hmm. There, There is definitely moments inside of this episode that stretch that question. Not only his disappearance as the teleporting biker, but this point as well of horrifying creature with blackened teeth maybe we can interpret it as like how leo johnson may see Wyndham earl mm -hmm. like through all his little experiences and yet we don't see him look like that later when he's talking to leo johnson so that would poke a hole in that theory i mean it's really dependent on when we get the lens and when we are allowed to be the audience yeah so. it's hard to say because both times we see Wyndham earl with leo johnson we first see it early when he's like looking down at him with the white face, the black teeth. We get a very oh. similar mirror shot later when it's just from Leo Johnson's perspective again, and it doesn't have those elements. But at the same time, I don't think Leo Johnson was looking directly at Wyndham Earl. He was kind of distracted. But the camera was from the same angle. Camera was at the same angle, correct. To me, it would be in both times, white face and then later not white face, we're at the same angle where he's looking down at us and we're looking back up at him at the exact time he's looking down at Leo Johnson we can infer that we're having Leo Johnson's point of view okay. in both shots because that's where the camera is angled, right? It's giving us Leo Johnson's point of view in both of those areas. I mean, it could also be a little bit of a two-face action on that point. I mean, we do have literally two different types of faces that are occurring here. <laughs> what do you make then of the white and black aesthetic, the teeth, the face? Do you like that effect? What effect do you think it has? Just your own personal theorizing. It's it's horror. It's horrifying. It makes Wyndham Earl seem not only ghastly, but I'd almost argue demonic mm -hmm. in his own chaotic, horrifying sense. If you put someone in that little bit of makeup, maybe even touch it up a little bit extra, he could be fully a creature on a common horror film. I almost wonder if he was like, if it, if it is meant to be real and not just something that's like, spiritual imagine if it's meant to be like physically that's what he looks like if anyone walked in the room i'm not convinced that Wyndham earl is fully real in well, the first well let's place. say it is for let's, just a let's say it, that this man is a real man i wonder what kind of ritual he was involved in before he came to visit leo the duck buzz ritual. that's what you know what i'm saying that's kind of where i'm thinking too that if it was meant to be taken that Wyndham earl was really wearing white face paint and whatever's going on with the teeth and that was a real thing he purposefully did to himself some kind of weird ritual was happening outside in those woods before he came back to check on Leo and Major Briggs. <laughs> if it is something that only others can see, then again, it raises the question, can only Leo see it? Or could anyone that's spiritually aware, spiritually sensitive see that? Mm -hmm. um, and then again, there's the angle you have that you're not even sure how real Wyndham Earl is. Where do you currently sit on the Wyndham Earl Cooper real, not real spectrum after this episode? It's hard to say, really. They, It's something where I lean deeply on... These things are real, but more in the spiritual sense, and that Wyndham Earl might be a remnant of something, or Cooper might be a remnant of something. I can't really decide which one. I'm leaning more on 
Wyndham Earl just because he's seems to have more of a supernatural ability as of late. So it, you think that he's a remnant? He's a remnant or he is some form of owl ache or leech, if you will, mm. whatever terminology you want to use. And I'm kind of looking back on the instance with Leo Johnson. And I know that's his appearance. I, I know I've argued with perspective and so on, but what if there was something similar? There's this book that I've been going into uh, through the Dragonlance series uh, over Venus Salamnus. And at one point, one person acquires a gem in order to about the size of a child's heart, uh, probably little Nicky. I always measure things in child heart. A, a, ru- a ruby about the size of a child. Whenever heart. I go to the butcher shop, because I'm vegetarian, so I do totally go to the butcher shop, and I ask, <laughs> "Hey, can I get for can I get a cut of lean beef?" And they ask me how much. I'm saying, "Can I get approximately the size of one child heart?" <laughs> and what I'm trying to get at is that having this item allowed people to look at the person and see how their hearts were. And if there's one way that I could probably describe the visual heart of this man, of Wyndham Earl, it probably look a lot like how we saw him with the black teeth and white, mm-hmm. white ghastly face. He's becoming a little bit more transparent in his ways and as he rushes off to the Black Lodge. So I mm, makes me wonder how literal we are supposed to take Wyndham Earl. It's like that, that Cindy Lauper song, True Colors. Black and white? Yes. Okay. I have not turned the music. It's okay. Just, I have the one thing. And it just seems it like you're saying he's showing his true colors. This is what you're saying. Like he, th- he's showing his true colors, and there might be something mystical. Either he's willing to show, or something of Twin Peaks is willing put the, to put show. Put the mood ring on him, and we're getting the truth. Yes. And I kind of hope that we get to see that with more characters, if mm. that is the case. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Wyndham Earl's got a new game for Leo because Leo, it says it's too it's too late for punishment for Leo. They're too far in the game to just punish Leo. Mm-hmm. So he has a certain game plan. He has a bag. And we later find out what was in that bag. Presumably this might have been involving what Wyndham Earl was doing in the woods. Curiously enough, then that would imply that Wyndham Earl had already got the spiders before he came in to find out Major Briggs had been released. So was he going to do this thing with Leo with the spiders anyway, or did he have a different plan for the spiders and now just using it on Leo because Leo's being punished? I don't know. It's interesting. This man has a horse costume. This man indeed has a horse costume. And uh, now Leo Johnson is holding by the skin of his teeth, quite literally, uh, so that a bunch of tarantulas do not fall upon him, (laughs) which I think we're led to believe, at least in this moment, that... These spiders are poisonous. I I would assume that's the idea we're supposed to feel. We don't actually know they're all kind of spider. They look look like fuzzy tarantulas. Here's the thing. The saddest part about them is that no matter what, if that box drops, that's going to be a lot of sad, frightened little creatures. And the closest thing that they may be able to react upon is going to be Leo Johnson. Mm -hmm. So not a good time for anybody in this case. But it's the question of, are they poisonous and would kill him, or are they just going to, like, freak out and, like, scare him and maybe bite him but not kill him? It's a question, but at the same time, whether it's a psychological tactic in a deadly or not sense, Mm -hmm. it's very effective. Well, to Leo, it's going to kill him for sure. Yeah. We just don't know as a viewer which way that would go. And how long can Leo hold? Will anyone find him before that? It's in the middle of the woods, so, uh, Mm -hmm. and the only person who came from there was Major Briggs, so. I think it's also interesting that Wyndham Earl, you know, is so believing at this episode that fear is the gateway. So having Leo is basically a fear magnet out in the woods 
seems appropriate. Mm-hmm. He, it's almost like he's getting free Wi-Fi off of Leo, but it's dark <laughs> Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, it's oh, a hotspot. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and speaking of hotspots, Andy staring at the map, noticing a lot of a lot of hotspots on that map. He says interesting as he's looking at it, but Cooper and Truman are kind of off in their own little conversation. Andy's just staring in the background. Cooper finally brings up Josie's death. He guesses that it's fear that killed Josie, and he tells Truman that he saw Bob at that same night. It's okay. Josie's in paintings and drawer pulls, so um, maybe it was fear itself that just attaches her to this plane of Twin Peaks existence. Are you inclined to believe Cooper's assertion, then, that Bob was feeding off the fear of Josie, and the fear is what killed Josie? Uh, I mean, as far as things that Bob has been evolved with, uh, fear, or at the very least, a sense of... Severe discomfort mm-hmm. with people has been common, at least from what we've seen with him dancing around with uh, Maddie and mm-hmm. the almost attack on Donna. Donna, yeah. We might get into this more in the future, but one thing I think is kind of interesting is that if Bob was going after Josie, why Josie? Because we know that Bob was involved with the Palmer family with Leland, but when did it get to Josie and for how long? Because we saw <laughs> when Bob left Leland, there was this camera shot of like it going through the woods or something. Did it recently come out with Josie? Was it was Josie's fear like of the past few days what brought it out? Or had it been with Josie actually a while? I, that's one thing I'd be interested to think about. If Are there any connections between Josie and and Bob or Josie and Leland or Josie and Laura, any of those people. If we're to believe the theory that Cooper has proposed to us, I imagine imagine as the two planets are getting closer to aligning, the door opens itself more mm-hmm. and more and more. There's more access to this very spiritual being. Mm-hmm. And to have something like fear, like an intense amount of fear come out would be a little bit tantalizing for a leech-like being such mm-hmm. as bob to appear with yeah no i i think that it was just a little bit of a fun time with a little honey on a stick before mm-hmm. uh that honey was taken away mm. and then cooper also says in this conversation that he believes that the black lodge is the same thing that truman had referred to as the evil in these woods back way back we talked about the bookhouse boys for the first time mm-hmm. uh, which i think is something we kind of had just assumed but we never really said it directly so is that also your working hypothesis that they are, if not the same thing, closely aligned? I mean, have an evil in perspective in the woods. Yeah, sure. Uh, having something mystical and foreboding and likely taking on hosts. I could say that that might be considered very evil in many perspectives. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you wonder how effective the bookhouse boys would be to combat something like that when it seems like it thoroughly pervades the woods and is completely outside of their realm of human control. All we know is that they're just a group of people that hang out so far. What yeah. the Bookhouse boys do and uh, what actions no they've done No girls allowed. Evil. No girls allowed. We're the Bookhouse men. Uh, and we, uh, we're basically the police, except not. Yeah, we don't know what the Bookhouse boys would do because they've done nothing. Yeah. Other than have a title and we, we do know out. what Wyndham Earl would do because he while he's listening into this conversation with the bonsai tree he says very looking all disheveled he says Dale I could kiss your pointy little head which part is pointy um all of it all of it yes <laughs> he's it's all, all a matter of perspective uh it's it's the razor sharp wit of Dale Cooper that's the pointy part oh no and again Wyndham Earl's going off about fear that it's his favorite emotional state Wyndham Earl says victory is at hand. He knows the entrance. He knows when he can enter. And now he has the key, i.e. 
fear. The time has come to gather his queen and embark on their dark honeymoon. And then, of course, he does the evil villain thing that is almost at this point overly cliche, even by the 90s, where the villain just says to themselves their evil plot reveal to the audience. Uh, at least the hero wasn't here, I guess, in this case. Yeah. He does say, I haven't been this excited since I punctured Caroline's aorta. Yeah, Which but- thus is confirming what Cooper had long suspected, that the one who killed Caroline was, in fact, Wyndham Merle himself, and that when Cooper failed in his vigilance to save her, it was that Cooper failed to save the wife of Wyndham Earl from Wyndham Earl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's something certainly going on in Wyndham Earl's head that he says such things. I'm, hmm. Wyndham Earl, again, has been unreliable at many points, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's even just fun thinking about how he has kind of like reverse spoke like on the cheating angle and his little speech to leo johnson if you Mm -hmm. reverse all the meanings it also becomes twice as fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you don't mean like literally reverse speech like what major briggs was doing because that was reverse speech backward speech no i think the reverse in either intention Mm -hmm. uh, or feeling Mm -hmm. if you will because again i'm not seeing much aligned with what Wyndham Earl's perspective is. We know that Wyndham Earl's mental state is a bit uh, crazed and frenzied right now. Whether he's correct or incorrect in his assumptions, we'll obviously find out as time goes on how much of his madness is planned out and how much of his madness is genuinely unstable. But uh, Cooper's health also seems to be a little bit questionable right now. There's a quick little line where he mentions that he was on his like second meditation of the day in lieu of sleeping, which I'm wondering, Cooper, how little sleep are you getting? When you say you're meditating instead of sleep, how are you doing, Cooper? I know how you feel, Cooper. I can't say I do. I've never meditated instead of slept. Mm-hmm. That, that to me seems very dangerous, especially when he needs to keep his head in the game. Otherwise, like lives could be at stake. And if he's not getting the rest he needs... That's concerning. Okay. Uh, he remarks about how we only use a small amount of our potential, which, again, makes me wonder, is he using all of his potential right now? And then he seems to have never mentioned Annie to Diane until this one recording, because he says that he wanted to make a specific mention of Annie, which, again, would imply last time we saw him talking to Diane, I think it was the last time, he noticeably shut off his recording to go talk to Annie. It's almost like it was a little secret that he wasn't even talking to Diane about quite yet. Maybe he was still trying to figure out his own feelings before he reported on her. Yeah. But then he he talked about how Annie kind of made him realize how gray, cold, and solitary his life had been ever since Caroline. At that moment, almost as if on cue, Annie knocks and enters into the hotel room. And she talks about all the speech. She's in a complete sweaty palm panic. She doesn't want to sound like a deranged Barbie doll because she's terrified of public speaking. And, you know, they get about 30 seconds into working through a speech when immediately it just the conversation dive bombs into your forest is beautiful and peaceful. And the, <laughs> the metaphor quickly drops and they're no longer talking about trees. No, no, what their conversation on the trees is absolutely fascinating on how uh, it's easy enough to try to compare like human lives to something like the trees mm. and how Ghostwood, like having all these casualties mm. would probably not be the best. But at the same time, Annie brings up that at the end of the day, yes, the tree is not a human being, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's a life. And I will do some friendly back and forth, I guess, in this case then, because just kind of with the last episode, I, I had a part that you liked that I didn't quite care for. This was probably the instance for that for me. This is probably the least, my least favorite part of the episode. This conversation to me felt very jumbled and forced. I didn't quite like the way it transitioned from the tree conversation to the, 
you know, your forest is beautiful. Part of it's been damaged. Every every forest has its shadow. The very heavy-handed tree metaphors for Annie's backstory, and then they just start, like, making passionate love on the bed. I don't know. To me, it just felt a bit forced for a relationship that already, as the mayor points out, she's only been in Twin Peaks for about 15 minutes. I think that it's definitely something to try to... Uh, and I'm not exactly the biggest fan of, like, oh, Annie has suddenly appeared and there's a romance. Mm-hmm. I have been open about that. But on the same token, I do have a enjoyment seeing them banter back and forth mm-hmm. and having a conversation that seems to be at what it feels like their own levels together. Not to mention... Having more forest talk is nice because, believe it or not, <laughs> the woods are big metaphors in Twin Peaks. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I don't even necessarily have a problem with Annie being so quickly introduced. I used to dislike how she and John Justice Wheeler were very much thrust into the storyline toward the end. I still would have preferred them to be a little bit earlier in appearance. But I understand the idea that Annie is someone who enters this late in the game. And from a narrative angle, in the long run, I actually do like what Annie brings to the table. But this is a moment where, to me, it felt too forced and too quick inside the situation itself. The conversation didn't have a lot of subtlety or a lot of mobility. It felt very much like there was just a quick, jarring jump of logic from, we're going to write this speech, to, we're going to make love on the bed. And it just felt a little too snappy, a little too quick. And it didn't feel in line with what I know of their characters. If this had been Bobby talking with someone and then just immediately shifting gears quite awkwardly, I'd kind of buy into it. I don't necessarily know if it works for Cooper and Annie for me. I think that from last episode when it was ending on how they were starting to heavily lean on one another, I think it's okay to have one of these scenes and have Mm -hmm. a point where they are expressing further passions for one another. And especially since this will be likely their last time uh, with one another. But Mm -hmm. hey, we'll probably find out more mm-hmm. next time on Twin Peaks. Do you think that they actually slept together? Do you I, think they went quote unquote all the way? I think that both of their shirts were off and it faded to black, which is the common uh, phrasing of they did something. I'm just curious. Cause I think that's kind of interesting to note. I want whether to make or not- love to you. It fades to black. Yeah, I, I'm okay. Confident. So you're you're also going to assume that they did the same things that John Justice Wheeler and Audrey did when yeah when they literally mentioned that they're going to make love. Yes. Okay. Keep keep that in mind. Good. Good. Interesting. Um. Then we are going to move on then to Major Briggs yet again. Uh, later on, Hawk finds Major Briggs just kind of wandering aimlessly onto the road, asking which way is the castle. Yeah, you know, he's got to find the queen. He's got to save the queen. Mm-hmm. Do, 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 do. And apparently the drug that Major Briggs had been given is haloperidol. Now, here's the thing that I have to ask, because, yes. like, we were talking about how before, like, without haloperidol, we saw the being known as Mike uh, come out, if mm-hmm. you will, with the absence of the drugs. Now, a common thing used with drugs or th- used with treatment tends to be like when it is used, it usually helps your antibodies and helps the cells inside of your mm-hmm. body try to work at immunity and just try to work at trying to fend off these issues. But sometimes whenever you do have something like that, and you're, it's not that you're sick, it's you'll experience the symptoms of yeah. it. So perhaps this is what we are seeing in which Major Briggs is experiencing similar symptoms. Yeah, I don't know the science behind pa- haloperidol in real life. We know that mm-hmm. earlier when it was brought up that when Nemerle had used haloperidol, Cooper hypothesizes that he might have been using the haloperidol to give himself the symptoms of the schizophrenia and that this would be what's happening to Major Briggs, that using it when you don't have those conditions gives you the symptoms like it, whereas those who 
have the schizophrenia or if we don't interpret it as schizophrenia really for Philip Gerard, then mm-hmm. when he has the lodge spirit or whatever's going on with him, possessing him, Mike, mm-hmm. um, then you have a situation where it's subduing it, whether it's against schizophrenia or the spiritual nature. It seems to do one of the others, mm-hmm. right? So if Major Briggs's natural state is not to have those conditions, then the drug is giving him those conditions. I mean... I don't know, again, in real world, if that's how Halipodol works. Yeah. I mean, can we really even say Major Briggs at the moment? Yes. Because remember, when he is taken aside and Hawk takes him home, thankfully Hawk's always mm-hmm. at the right place at the right time. Thank you, Hawk, for your fantastic so service. So you, you think there is some other entity speaking on behalf of his body? I don't want to throw out the option mm-hmm. because of how many times we've had these beings and entities appear mm-hmm. and what possible. special knowledge he ends up having because when he is being addressed, mm-hmm. uh, Garland's like, Garland, strange name. I think the part that makes me think it is still Major Briggs, and, and I think you raise a good point, though. The part that makes me think it still is is his voice doesn't change, whereas when Philip Gerard went into mic mode, his voice clearly dramatically went deep, and even Leland, when he was Bob was speaking through him more directly, the Bob voice went very different from Leland's normal talking voice. I would say that Garland Briggs definitely does have a difference. It's just more subtle. It's like he is almost choking on his own lungs. It's like Garland's mm-hmm. odd name. See, I think that's someone who's just really, really out of it. It very well could be. Though I am very impressed by the actor of Major Briggs, I don't know necessarily his tone and range as far as his voice goes. And when he does say Garland, what an odd name. Do you remember who he is reminded of? Um, This is very important. Betty Garland. Judy Garland. That's what I said. Do you know who Judy Garland is? A person. That is the main actress of The Wizard of Oz. Oh, I see. So what you're saying is that someone here, uh, namely um, an individual who works on the show, Mm -hmm. uh, might enjoy Wizard of Oz. We have brought up several times, Professor, that David Lynch loves himself some uh, Wizard of Oz. We have? We have. And so the Judy Garland reference is incredibly suspect Mm -hmm. that that's the name he should be reminded of. And when he's asked, you know, was it Wyndham Earl? He said, it was God, I suppose. Not sure how to read into that one. I'm even less sure how to read into the King of Romania was unable to attend. A little little less sure what to make into that. That's a rabbit hole I have not jumped down into personally. (laughs) But it seems like there's moments of extreme lucidity and then moments of complete incomprehension. And it's up to the viewer kind of determine which is which. Because when he's talking, he just all of a sudden starts saying, protect the queen, fear and love open the doors. And then he's about to ask, how does the queen? But then he never finishes that thought. We don't know what he was going to ask there. Yeah. But fear and love open the doors. Is that the ravings of a madman or is that something true? And I'm kind of curious and suspect on Wyndham Earl with this because think about it like mm-hmm. he's fear is something that opens the door and yeah maybe he's just trying to terrorize a specific woman that's important cooper and that's going to invoke a lot of fear but how he states that he's getting ready for the honeymoon mm-hmm. could be playful banter but at the same time there might be that inverse attempt of love but also the opposite of love i imagine to be fear mm-hmm. if we are it, to, it is arguably scale. an opposite yeah depends opposite. on opposite opposite <laughs> Uh, and then again, I'm going. My brain is stuck a little bit on the Palmers, a little bit, and, and the whole Bob fiasco. Yeah, I do think a little bit that Leland as Bob, being a previous host, 
what's more of an embodiment of fear and love than your own father being your killer? Like that sort of sense of this is a figure in your life that you genuinely love and genuinely loves you, but that whole relationship is being marred by this presence of Bob. Not to mention, like, how was Leland's life beforehand? Like, will we get a secret diary of Leland Palmer? Um, uh, do we get to learn more about him? Because he was someone who says that he mm, did find Bob. Like, at Pearl Lakes, yeah. He, he, and they might have been, like, scared as a child, like someone flicking matches at all I can really say is that with the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer and with Fire Walk With Me, we're obviously going to get more content related to the Palmer family and Leland to some extent. Mm -hmm. But both of those are mainly focused more on Laura. Okay. I can't say to what extent we'll get answers because that'll be spoilers. But obviously it's more than zero because it's about Laura. You're going to hear about Leland by proxy of those things. Just <laughs> We'll also hear about Sarah Palmer more, right? Like mm -hmm. It's just an obvious thing. Um, so I can't really say, but something to keep an eye and ear for, for sure. Uh, speaking of eyes and ears open, Andy very much is, is focused in on that map still as everyone else is having their own conversation. And he ends up accidentally helping Cooper by bringing up the 4-H club. And then eventually a train of thought leads to Cooper's understanding that they are referencing Jupiter and Saturn on the map. And that the next time that the door is going to be open is going to be the very specific time of January to June. Yep. It's, it's in the first six months of the year. That's right now, maybe. <laughs> we don't know what month it is with Twin Peaks. We don't even know what year it is in Twin Peaks. We have no clue what's happening. Yep. And I also think it's interesting to note that others have commented that this actually was not true of that year. The Jupiter-Saturn stuff wasn't actually happening the year that that was supposed to happen in the show. Like, that doesn't actually astrologically line up with real world. That's ah, okay. It's fictional June and No, you could look at, you could look January at Twin, Pe Twin Peaks isn't Twin our Peaks. reality. Yeah. You could look at it that way. We don't really have a town called Twin Peaks in our world, so it could be a slowly alternate universe. Yeah, yeah, it's funny about that, <laughs> Twin Peaks. <laughs> uh, something you want to say to the rest of the I professor? I want to say something later, but we'll talk about it at the Packards. Okay, well, we're getting there pretty soon here. Oh, boy. So Andy, again, trying to get their attention. Cooper ignores them. They eventually, as they're leaving, Andy, in a rush to follow them, knocks over the bonsai tree, at which point they finally realize that the plant was bugged. And I commented to you, Professor, that I really wish when they got the plant from Josie that Truman would have said, hmm, you know, I think the bonsai tree should be someplace that needs a little sprucing up. Let's put the bonsai tree in the sheriff department bathroom. <laughs> but here's the thing. And it also kind of like makes me curious is that this thing was from Josie. Yeah, like supposedly quote, quote, if Truman saw that, I don't think that the bathroom will be the place where he'd want something. He spends a lot of time in the bathroom gift from Josie. He spends a lot of time in the bathroom. It's a place of uh, frustration for him. We, so he wants something calming to remind him of Josie in the bathroom. Khalil, I don't care about your Truman fanfics. We have not seen him in the bathroom other than helping a man who'd been <laughs> stuck in there for I don't maybe weeks. See, how many characters of Twin Peaks do you want to see in the bathroom to believe they poop? <laughs> I believe that Truman poops. I believe that other people at the sheriff's department poop. Here's the difference. I believe that the bonsai should be a very pleasant experience. Is a bathroom with a bonsai tree more peaceful generally than a bathroom without? Yes. But here's the thing, Khalil. You say that he poops a lot. Like, I don't know about that. He might poop the You see the amount of donuts bathroom. and coffee these people are going through? <laughs> they do not poop then because that is a lot of dough. Well, I'm the, sorry. the coffee's pushing it through the bowels, <laughs> which you sounds like owls. Listener, I'd like to thank you for joining us for the Twin Peaks Lockdown. The bowels are not what they seem. As clearly you have stuck with us long enough for us to finally break. Or and this talk is the about. first episode. I don't know why you chose the second to last episode to tune in, but hi. 
Nice to meet you. You know, if you did, I'm not going to judge you for that. You do you. You do you. you. Good job. Have a nice one. Good day. And Sherman and- would be having a nice one if the bathroom had a bonsai tree. Instead, though, they find out it's been bugged. They finally know. And they just leave in a hurry with Briggs left behind and Andy left behind. But what I'm going to get at is that with a bonsai tree, yes. like... It's something important to Truman. He'd watch it around. But when we see Andy knock it over, it's like half off the table already and getting ready to like fly over. Admittedly, there was a lot of stuff on that table. There's a lot of stuff on the table. There's very likely things were pushed aside, but it's almost like a question of if not invisible hands might be working in the background. Uh, might I can be see guiding that. I don't them. personally subscribe to that theory, but I think it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. I won't outrule it. I mean, certainly Andy has a lot of good luck around this time. Yes. Andy does seem to be a source of intrigue in his intuition and to sort of the workings of his mind Mm -hmm. that may not always be logically there, but he does pick up on things purely through intuition, potentially. I still can't get over, though, that they left Briggs behind. Like, just in the condition he's in, no one to watch after him. Not even, like, they didn't say, like, Andy, watch the major or Cappy, watch the major. Khalil, Cappy is always there. Cappy is always He's never been there until recently, (laughs) as far as I know. What are you talking about? Cappy has been with us since the beginning. It's like the Blair Witch Project. Cappy's in every single shot. (laughs) So the the next thing I guess we had in our notes, uh, small little sections that'll be following up here. Uh, We have the Packards. A brief encounter with Andrew and Pete trying to break that steel box. Uh, They have it locked in this vice. To, to crumple it up, and it's not working. And Pete's exasperated because this is a state-of-the-art vice that he's got here. He is really proud of his power tools, but it wasn't work. So Andrew logically goes to the, the real power tool of mankind, the gun, and he shoots the box. With the gun. Now, like you said, good thing it wasn't a bomb. Good thing it wasn't something that, like, is very precious inside. Whatever it was, like, it was a detonation device with enough pressure that would blow them to smithereens. He just shoots it, and just Catherine, Pete, and Andrew Packard are completely out of the story after that. I mean, it'd be kind of funny. (laughs) Would it not be entertaining? It would be very entertaining. How would you feel about that? Uh, I would feel that there is still some mystery. I want to unlock with a key, Mm -hmm. so I prefer the key. And obviously, Catherine and Andrew both take an interest in this key, but they make some weird comments about how their brother and sister of course they trust each other let's put the key in plain sight yep there we go it is a good layered area of dialogue with one another just because as Catherine once said she was lying to someone her whole life Mm -hmm. i mean like and literally Catherine and andrew have been working on the lie for quite some time Mm -hmm. so to say that they might get a little bit advantageous with one another is definitely on the playing field a uh, quick side note before we move on to this from this section. Yep. Uh, there was a subtitle error of particular note. There, where, was not, there was no error. Everything's intentional in Twin Peaks. So the subtitle on the Z to A collection Blu-ray. Yeah. I got it right for once. Yeah. Uh, it says, woman said, yes, we do. The only person of the female sex in the room was Catherine. And it did also like show Andrew's name, like Andrew. Yes. Colin. So it's Andrew and woman, woman. not Catherine, woman. Catherine, That's crazy. Catherine has been demoted. That's insane. From a, from a named character to woman. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> uh, Catherine was too long to spell. Maybe if her name was something short like Cat. Maybe if she had fun names like that, then it would fit easier. So mm-hmm. they just went with the five-letter word of woman. Right. <laughs> so Ben is hoping to learn some five-letter words when he reads the holy texts of all of humanity. He's got the Bible, 
the Quran, the Tao Te Ching, and the Bhagavad Gita, among other assorted texts. Yes. Stocking up on those bad boys. Yep. And uh, he says that somewhere in there are going to be the answers that he seeks, and he will read them cover to cover until he finds the answers. What do you think of that idea? How likely is it that, A, there's two layers of this, A, or one, we'll do one. How likely is it that one, a regular average person, will find the answers they seek in looking at all those texts cover to cover. The second thing is, what are the odds of Ben finding the answer in those books cover to cover? I don't believe that there's going to be a full-on answer for him that'll be playing, nor do I feel that we're going to be in Twin Peaks with enough time. As you've told me, we have one more episode, mm -hmm. unless it's going to be him reading, speed reading through all these books as everything's mm -hmm. going on in town. So. Well, you do know that there is more Twin Peaks-related material that potentially we could find an answer later. I want a picture book of just Ben, like a kid's picture book of Ben just reading uh, all the books. Well, and even if it's not, let, let's let's just say hypothetically. Hypothetically, thousand let's episodes. Say, let's say Ben never appears again in anything related to Twin Peaks at all. Okay. But we're led to believe he still is reading those books. Yeah. In your head canon, do you believe that Ben would ever find the answers he seeks reading those books cover to cover? No. I think that he'll find paths. I think that he'll find ideas mm -hmm. but at the same time i feel that this leg of ben's journey is going to very much need his own perspectives mm -hmm. on what he feels is best for him mm -hmm. he, he's gonna have to come to terms with probably a lot of his dark past and dark musings mm -hmm. and so though i can't attest whether or not the truth may be the best as we spoke before about how whether or not donna should be mm -hmm. given the truth directly mm -hmm. It's a very personal. It's a very personal path. Good is not that easy. Mm -hmm. So you don't really have an answer for, in general, how effective you think looking at those books cover to cover would be to finding answers. I, again, I think he can set them up on paths. I think that there can be a lot said for people on their spiritual journeys, mm -hmm. but I think that there's also something that can be said on people who can either take things a little bit too far mm. or try to push on one path too hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ben's going to need a lot of work done for all the things mm -hmm. that he's done. And it's going to be more than just what's in these books. Mm -hmm. um, may I pontificate a little bit on this? Khalil, you need to stop using these $10 words. They are not going to get you anywhere. And I'm going to go cross-eyed Googling them. But I like the word. It, it's like, it basically means to like speak your opinions, but like annoyingly. And that's what I like to do. You get, yeah, okay. That that's, and I it's got like a little bit that. of like a religious vibe to it, which feels thematically appropriate. Okay, I lost arguments. Go mm -hmm. ahead. The mm -hmm. floor is yours, Khalil. So uh, when I was in 11th or 12th grade of my high school year, I went through a phase where kind of like Ben, I was reading a lot of religious texts. And I remember reading cover to cover. I don't know how long it took me. The Bible, uh, the Quran, the Tao Te Ching, I believe it was a little bit later, but I did do that. The Bhagavad Gita, skimmed the Upanishads, looked at a bunch of other texts, and everyone's experiences are going to be different. But I, I think one of the things I can say from my own experience is that Ben is more likely to encounter more questions than answers mm -hmm. in the sense that a lot of these texts, while they will position answers, there is a lot of uncertainty in that. I mean, when he gets to the whole section of Job in the Bible, the, the moral of Job generally is like, who knows what's going on? Life is suffering. Here you go, Job. <laughs> Things beyond your control will mess with you. Um, and a lot of religion is leaps of faith. It's not understanding, but trusting that someone else of higher power does. 
And Ben, does he trust anyone higher than himself? I So I think that Ben might run into a frustration that not only does some of these texts have questions that, and, and not to be offensive, but possibly contradictions, depending on your interpretation, that he could get confused within a text. But then what if he's looking at the Bible versus the Tao Te Ching when they don't agree with each other? How is he going to react when he sees that all these books with all their ancient wisdom don't even have a coherent singular message. There's multiple different truths and ideas out there. I think he's going to end up more confused than ever, realizing that even these wise people of the past do not have one message. Now, hear me out here, Cleo. Yes. Like, Ben yes. knows, like, as far as these books are concerned, if you take all their infinite mm -hmm. wisdom and how long they've been down their paths... He, he knows the one lesson that's true within them all. Absolutely every yes. time, 110%. Mm -hmm. And that is time heals all Yep, wounds. I remember that is definitely what Jesus said. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Uh, Lao Tzu, Confucius. Mm -hmm. All these they people. All, they're all saying every single Hindu god. Yeah. They all say it. Every single time one. Time heals all wounds. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's like the, the secret catchphrase, you know? So, yeah, I find that very strange that Ben is so confident that these books that he hasn't read yet, he says that contained within these ageless wisdom is the idea time heals all wounds. It's, I'm it's, like, one, no, that's not the <laughs> message of all these books. If anything, a lot of them are saying that, like, your life is short, make good choices, consequences happen. I don't think they're saying time heals that stuff. That's That's definitely not the message of most of them. But then, two, he hasn't even read them, so how would he even know? He's just guessing that that's what he says. He is He's looking confident. for things. Yeah, it's almost like his attitude going into these books is it's going to confirm things he already suspects. That seems like a wrong way to approach this. Well, there's two ways you can look at it. One, it could be certainly that. The other way you can look at it is that he sees that he has a daughter who is hurting mm -hmm. and will say whatever he needs to make sure that she feels confident mm -hmm. and well and she'll be able to grow up well. And, and he and does be useful care to about Audrey. And be useful to him. A happy Audrey is an Audrey that'll do Twin Peaks for him, do the Miss Twin Peaks like he wants. There's still that angle that if this is all an act, if this is all at, at the service of his power, he wants to tell Audrey what she wants to hear so that she will agree to do Miss Twin Peaks for him because that is the public forum. And if he gets Miss Twin Peaks to, again, be about everything going on with Ghostwood, that furthers his agenda. I think that there's definitely just like a half business side or maybe even just like far more than a half mm -hmm. a business side that Ben, that he can not really overshadow or at least at this point. But I still am fairly confident that he does love, care, and want Audrey to be a-okay. I, I mostly, I, I pick at and I, 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 I ask questions obviously i can't give you fully my thoughts until all is said and done yeah because we don't know with one more episode left if we're gonna see something flip the turn of where ben is morally why did ben kill every member of the <laughs> cast i can't spoil anything um so <laughs> so so uh, but they, there's a nice conversation that happens though where they're talking about um the situations and audrey feeling that she's never gonna see Justice Wheeler again, and Ben's confident again, believes in him. If, if John Justice Wheeler said he'll be back, he'll be back. And there's this commentary that Audrey makes about how their time was concentrated, or Ben says their time was concentrated, and Audrey says it's the concentrate they make concentrate from. Uh, honestly, Beautiful line. I think the better line is that Ben is just trying to say, hey, like John Justice Wheeler, if he says that he, something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And Audrey just kind of like says like... <laughs> Yeah, Dad, uh, I know uh, you can't really promise that thing, but I appreciate the effort or mm -hmm. something along those lines. And 
uh, it, 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 it's it's the recognition, the dynamic, and the knowledge of one another that I deeply enjoy between these two characters. So I mm-hmm. think that that definitely wins uh, the line of the episode award. Well, the mystery of the episode might possibly go well okay there's bigger mysteries than this but the mystery of the scene might go to the element of audrey talking about her updates because she says that she just came back from her trip to seattle yeah she came back from her trip to seattle with she updates. Got updates from seattle the yep. city of seattle and what is her update seattle. professor oh well you know uh it's just that there's going there's a lot of dependency uh from the packards as far as Ghostwood goes, when it comes to the Twin Peaks Bank and Trust, or something along those lines. Regardless, it's the Twin Peaks sort of trademark establishment of money that they're involved with that she had to go to Seattle for this knowledge. In case you're not quite sure, listener, what we're so confused about, and, and maybe we missed something. Maybe we missed something when Audrey was going to Seattle the first time and Ben was talking, but we were so caught up in the young romance, we didn't even figure out what was going on. But why did she have to go to Seattle? to find out what's happening at the Twin Peaks Bank. It's not like she found out some scoop on a Seattle bank that they're using. No, she went to Seattle, and the information she has is related to things in Twin Peaks. Maybe Twin Peaks is just branching out. Twin Peaks is just reaching beyond the simple town of Twin Peaks. You know? Maybe. Not really sure. It seems a little confused, and if it was stated, I think it maybe could have been stated clearer. (laughs) You know? Again, we might have just missed something, but even then, the way it's worded, it sounds rather strange. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, I would almost say. Uh, Speaking of Ben, we also have more Ben content later on with uh, Donna. By the way, before we go into more of Mm -hmm. that... Mm -hmm. Like, that just reminded me of something, Cleal. Okay. What happened with Ben last episode? Oh, we never found out. We never found out. Nope. He just looked shocked in a direction. Yeah, no, the, the sound happened that happened throughout the episode when someone's hand was shaking. But all we saw was Ben turn dramatically toward the camera angle, maybe to where the fireplace is in his office. That's my best guess. And then it just cuts. And then we next go down to the lower floor with Pete saying, Josie, I see your face at the painting. It has not been explained and has not been addressed. Oh, boy. And you want... Well, no, the best part, like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about now, and that's in the direction of his fireplace, which we yep. have noted that the log lady has boarded up. Correct. So In her house, yes. The log lady does not go around town <laughs> boarding everyone's fireplaces up. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? You thought that putting pitch in the double R's walls and furniture was a bad idea. <laughs> Wait to see if she does the fireplaces. And one of the theories we had was that it was going to be, well, one theory I had. You you are not allowed to have theories because you I'm just thinking of like a clickbait, like BuzzFeed article, like fireplaces hate this lady. Learn this one <laughs> neat trick that this log enthusiast plays on all the town's fireplaces neat but yeah we thought it might have been well i thought it might have been donna Mm. but uh as we see from later as you were about to say donna is marching right up to the good old uh mr horn yeah because in a previous conversation she's talking with uh her parents eileen and doc hayward and they want her to read the speech and the first thing she says after eileen's like Read us your speech. Uh, Donna is like, I'd rather talk about the truth right now, (laughs) which is just uh, very funny. I think one thing that Donna's character is really good at and the actress Laura Flynn Boyle is really good at portraying is that sort of snotty, rebellious teenager attitude that isn't necessarily 100% rational, but is very passionate about what it thinks and what it feels. I'm referring Mm -hmm. to it as the personality, not the human being. (laughs) And uh, so when she says, like, I'd rather talk about the truth right now, it's very overdramatic, but also kind of like, 
yeah, I, I vibe with it. I, I buy into what's being sold here. Mm. Uh, Donna says she's tired of them talking to her like a ch she's a child. She wants to know the truth. Again, she may or may not be 18 right now. And, you know, they say, like, you got to understand limitations, Donna. And she's like, I know the limitations of lying. I know you raised me to tell the truth. I expect the same from you. And says that if they won't tell her, she'll find out from Ben. And this is their choice, not hers. They made the choice not to tell, and she leaves. Again, I'm 100% on, I'm going to say it, I'm on Donna's side. How dare you? Because I think that at her age, given the situation, yeah, the parents have been given multiple opportunities to tell Donna the truth. Instead, they know she's going to go to Ben. They're letting Ben be the one to tell her. And that's probably not a good idea from their perspective, but they're letting it happen anyway. I will say that I don't know. Like, they, there can be an argument for age, certainly, but let's just face it, whenever it comes to news or trying to find some information, Donna has not handled much no. of the situations in any healthy way. And she hasn't, but also maybe that's why you need to tell it in a way that is in a healthy environment. Maybe talking to her calmly as a family and being upfront with her might help her take the news a bit better than letting Ben tell her the night of Miss Twin Peaks behind a closed curtain in a public forum. I don't know. Maybe there's a better environment you could have given your daughter to learn the truth. Because no matter what, the truth's going to get out. Like it's the, too late to keep it hidden. Like the sheriff station bonsai tree planted bathroom. Exactly. Yep. It's the, the truth will be portrayed to Donna like a slideshow of wrestling conquests. Speaking of which, Nadine. Oh, no. Wow. Oh, Nadine no. is showing a slideshow reel of all her wrestling highlights to her, basically her family, right? Yeah. Ed, Norma, Mike Jacoby, the most important people to her life. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Jacoby explains that when a couple is contemplating breaking up, okay, breaking, breaking up, up, it's easier to talk about your feelings when you're around other people, which, sure. And Nadine says that all this, because she's asked, when did this all start? And Nadine says, I guess it all started when I noticed Mike's buns at school. I mean, that's usually how this starts, isn't it? Uh, whatever this, whatever this is, that's usually how this starts. But Nadine is, you know, a sensitive soul. She does feel guilty about this whole situation because as she admits, I mean, Mike and I are hot and she worries about Ed being sad. Yeah, and... Ever the empath. Ever the empath, Nadine. You know, you know, it's funny. Like, what would the stage beyond hot be? Uh, the stage that is beyond the stage of hotness Does it, for is, it is it smoking before it's hot or after it's hot? Uh, I think that you can have, have an amount of heat, but the way that she says it, they're hot. Hot. And the thing is, what stage is beyond that? Well, Ed definitely brings up that stage, or one <laughs> of the stages beyond is like, uh, Nadine, Norma and I are getting married. And or when, planning on getting married. Yeah, and when Nadine hears that, uh, I love the layers of facial reactions at play with the actress. It's this sense of stunned, glaring, a half smile on the face, but the eyes show a lot of pain. And just this sort of confused, and she's like, well, Mike and I are going to get married too. This sort of like, we're going to one-up this. Yikes. And then she's like crushing Mike's hand. Uh, and bones are just kind of crushing with the sound effects. And Mike just lets out this abrupt scream when the pain finally hits him. It's okay. Snakes don't have bones, right? Uh, that's <laughs> a valid point, I suppose. I mean, and if he does have bones, like, he won't need them anymore. What a, what a day for Norma, right? So Norma, at some point in the day, worked at the double R like a regular shift. 
Or maybe it's a maybe it's a short shift. Who God, knows? It's a full day for her, isn't it? She worked at the double R probably early when it opened, right? Yeah. She opened. And then I'm assuming the double R just closed early or else they have like Heidi or some other worker we don't see very often it's, run the place after while Twin Peaks is happening, Miss Twin Peaks is happening because Shelly, Annie, and Normal were not there for Miss Twin Peaks. It's the biggest event in Twin Peaks. Yeah. All, probably all 50,000 people are all at the bar. <laughs> all 5,000 people, yes. Yep. And uh, so she's got to get all the food ready and she's got to pay attention. So I imagine that's more likely. So she to had to closed. work a, a early probably full shift she had to go to this therapy session where she announced along with ed her marriage and everything with nadine she had to go and plan out with the judging situation of what criteria they're going to use because apparently they don't like have the same criteria for judging every year that's strange yeah. and then she actually has to do miss twin peaks that night yeah uh, no she even had like oh it, the playing stage is for it and how she has to almost like take the lead mm -hmm. on using everyone's preferences and just say yeah i'll take care of this Ah, oh, gods, Norma, Norma, you are very, you're very powerful in how you can handle everything. Like, I, the thing is that, yes, I know Cooper is working a lot on the cases and all, but Norma is certainly juggling things all at once. Is she meditating to sleep? Uh, yeah, full, full day, full day. Okay, uh, one quick side thing we could possibly bring in, too, is that when Norma's working at the Double R, we do get a moment where they're trying to butter her up with Annie and uh, Shelly, trying to get her vote, trying to get her to split the vote. And during that conversation, Norma says they need a respectable, really good quality winner this year, especially this year. Uh, and, of course, in my brain, I'm thinking back to 2020, and I'm thinking, yes, 2020 did need a respectable uh, winner of Miss Twin Peaks. I'm like, oh, wait, this is not talking about our world. It's talking <laughs> about the fictional world. And that's when Annie's like, oh, you mean Laura Palmer? And it seems like that was the reason maybe that Norma said that. It's never really quite confirmed that was the real reason. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on Twin Peaks this year, whatever time is in Twin Peaks. You don't say. But this does indicate that Annie has heard of Laura Palmer uh, either from before going to the convent or she's heard since coming back. Mm -hmm. which I imagine it's it's definitely the latter. I don't know if she knew her before or not, but when she came back, I'm sure it was pretty big news. Like, hey, what if I missed, guys? Oh, um, Laura Palmer, uh, she died. Oh, wow, that's horrible. Who's Laura Palmer? Uh, and then they had to tell the whole story about Leland and Laura. If they even know that Leland's the killer, who knows what anyone knows anymore? Yeah, like it certainly implies some things. Maybe even like Norma was bringing up Laura Palmer with the Meals on Wheels situation mm -hmm. because that seem to be something in the past so that could be a potential connection but man laura palmer's reputation certainly precedes her i mean i guess if this is a small town and someone passed away and was a really high profile case that's why cooper's even in town she might have wondered like why is an fbi agent in twin peaks well then that would obviously bring up laura too i do think it's interesting though that even now this far into the show we haven't had really many people talk about the fact that it was Leland that killed her. We don't even know who knows and who doesn't know. Like, obviously, Leland died, and they had a wake for that, and it was a small funeral of some kind, at least. But do people know that Leland killed Laura? Do they know exactly the nature of what's going on? What's the common understanding of Laura Palmer's death in the community of Twin Peaks at the moment? Do they know about Bob? Like, it's kind of confusing, isn't it? It certainly isn't described. Like, does Nor what does Norma think happened to Laura? Does Norma know or not know? What matters is that she's dead now and she cannot enter Twin Peaks pageant. Mm -hmm. So that is unfortunate. I just, I feel like there could have been more done with the show to address how much the community would be reeling from that information. Mm -hmm. Like, it's obviously traumatizing to so many people that, you know someone like Laura Palmer, who was incredibly popular, incredibly active in the community, someone who was kind of this face of 
kind of the youth at the time, someone who was like, you know, was was she like a beauty pageant queen or something like that? She was something. Like she wasn't Miss Twin Peaks because obviously that hadn't happened yet for her, but mm. she was she was known to be very, very influential and popular. And to know that she was killed obviously was huge, but that it was her father and that the father was an integral part of Ben Horn's business and part of the community. And that is he did that to his own daughter. That doesn't seem to be something people are grappling with, either that they don't know or they're just kind of repressing that. Yeah. It it really feels like shh, don't talk about it. <laughs> shh, don't talk about it. And that's that's interesting. Yeah, and as far as this goes, it's almost as if like the show might even be reminding us of Laura Palmer, just because we haven't really heard of Laura Palmer mm-hmm. in so long. And we're coming to the end. Remember yeah. there was like a length of time in which there was just nothing uh for twin peaks it was mm-hmm. like a few months delayed and it was interesting also obviously every episode ends with that picture of laura palmer yeah so there is always a visual reminder but we haven't heard many people talk about her in many many episodes nope she, she's it's almost as if like she her dead body her gravestone was sweeped into the center hole inside of Twin Peaks. Well, and Donna made the comment in, a, in one of the best Donna scenes the whole show has ever offered mm-hmm. when Donna's at night at Laura's grave and she says they couldn't bury you deep enough. Mm. That for Donna, Laura kept lingering. <gasps> that yes. means that someone might be daring a hole deeper. Maybe the hole <laughs> in the ground is Laura's uh, grave where maybe. they're dumping all the characters. I, I was more going on the side that Recently, I don't think Donna's life has involved Laura. She finally got out of Laura's shadow. James, by leaving Twin Peaks, seems to have gotten out of Laura's shadow. This is kind of a weird tangent, but bear with me. If you think of the idea that someone exists so long as they're in the memory of others, and that someone, even after they've passed away, can still loom large over the community if everyone is still thinking about them, Mm -hmm. who's thinking about Laura Palmer? I would argue that the only one who really has been that we can prove is Benjamin Horn because he commented on that. He was said thinking of thinking of Laura. He wants things to be better for his family. He said like a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Other than Ben, who is bringing up Laura? We haven't seen Laura's mom in so long. What's happened to Sarah Palmer? She's just been in that house. Maddie's dead. Leland's dead. Laura's dead. She's Has fine. anyone checked on Sarah Palmer? Yeah, she's fine. So I think that it's kind of interesting because some theories about Twin Peaks talk about how the emphasis on Laura Palmer is at least partly about the idea that a lot of crime procedurals, someone dies, it's the subject of an episode, then they move on. Whereas Twin Peaks takes Laura's death as extremely important, and for the most part of the series, or at least a good half of it, it is the central focus. But I guess to counter that, it feels like ever since the killer's been revealed, Laura Palmer her ghost faded away, her memory faded away, and not just her, but the people connected to her. I've been thinking about this for a while and haven't mentioned anything, but I think it's safe enough to say at this point, what happened to Ronette? Ronette was someone who in season one was in a coma, and that's why she wasn't really around, but ever since she presumably got out of that, no one cares about what happened to Ronette. No one cares about what happens to Sarah Palmer. No one cares about the people around her. And I think that that, I don't think it's a purposeful creative choice of the show. I think the show just kind of wanted to move on, Mm -hmm. which again, I just, I think it's a failed mistake. I think it's a wrong move. I don't know what the Ronette plotline should have been. I don't want to make Ronette the new main character, but I do think it's kind of sad that the characters who experience the trauma but live, Mm -hmm. they get shoved aside. I would say that whenever it comes towards this larger focus, I've spoken before that as far as this being referred Mm -hmm. to Twin Peaks, I'm fine as long as it does involve Twin Peaks. And it seems that it's kind of broadening the scope almost outwards to this more mystical and historical nature of the area. Mm -hmm. So I'm not too bothered 
by it. And I don't know how much that would necessarily aid in things such as Sarah Palmer or if it would aid in Ronette. Mm-hmm. Would I want to see more episodes that would explore more characters? Yeah, absolutely. I just think their stories are important. Mm-hmm. As, as victims and survivors of trauma that got brushed to the side so we could talk about, and again, I love these plot lines, but talk about Nadine's with Mike and talk about James with Evelyn Marsh and talk about <laughs> little Nikki and Dick Tremaine. Yeah. A lot of plot lines that are very silly in nature or at least you know, soap opera like for the Evelyn one. Mm-hmm. I do question the choice of prioritizing those over real trauma. I I would also kind of put up to question on whether or not with those questions on answers and these people set aside, though in the past, yeah, that would be a bit more unfortunate. We mm-hmm. are lucky enough to be in a very connected, not only community, just connected worldwide i'd love to see some stories from people Mm -hmm. who would want to expand on that area Mm -hmm. who would want to bring forward those ideas and perspectives especially from those who may be more familiar with them than others like i don't know how familiar some of the writers may have been with those scenarios as well so who knows how much liberty they could even given situations like that what you just said reminded me of something. So you're kind of talking about like fan stories and fan fiction. Uh, there have been a few fan films and like short projects with Twin Peaks. Okay. Um, I know there's been a few that have looked at kind of other characters. One that I haven't checked out yet, so I can't say if, if I like it or dislike it or any commentary about it. But there was a project, I think it's still going on, that is called The Summer House at Pearl Lakes. And it does deal into an interpretation of Leland's character okay. from the past. So earlier you brought up like, you know, you wonder how much they'd go into that. There mm. is a fan project that looks at that more. Um, so I, again, something maybe to check out in the grand scheme after everything <laughs> official is done. Uh-huh. If we're still in the mood to look at more things, I would love to look at fan projects after the official stuff's all been looked at. Okay. Fascinating. So, yeah. So something we have to look at now though, Professor. Oh no. And I'm I'm sorry that we have to delve into this level of darkness and, uh, uh, and perversity and debauchery and sin. We could just say no. I think that every holy book that Ben is looking at would argue against us looking at this. Yeah. But Tim Pinkle is choreographing some dance lessons. Oh, I, you could just stop at Tim Pinkle. I think that's <laughs> so, looking at Tim Pinkle itself. Is I mentioned a sin. this to you before, and I couldn't spoil it, but now I can. Uh, if you look at Tim Pinkle's occupations on the Twin Peaks wiki, it lists Tim Pinkle as dance choreographer, pine weasel expert, home care salesman, taxidermist, and he is Tim and Tom's taxidermy co-owner. Why? Because it's Tim Pinkle, the most central member of the economy of Twin Peaks. He is someone, certainly. Like, really? If you need to choreograph a dance or you need to stuff a weasel, you got a man right here who can sell it to you. How would you describe the dance that Tim Pinkle is having them uh, practice? No. So... Lucy similarly was questioning it because they're they're often bending over. He is I don't making, think mine was a question. I think is, mine is a statement. He is making cupping gestures uh, in the vicinity of breasts. He is telling them to act like flowers uh, vaguely as blowing in the wind, but it all just seems really sexually charged. And, you know, Lucy asks what they're doing. And, you know, he says, don't ever question the vision of your choreographer. You are but a petal on my rose. And, you know, he's uh, he's really quite aggressive about this. And the whole situation just paints Tim Pinkle in the worst of lights. There are greater evils in Twin Peaks. You know, the, you have individuals like Leo Johnson and Leland and Ben during his most heinous of days. 
and every single uh, Renault brother, obviously. But Tim Pinkle, Tim Pinkle is that that uh, that thorn directly on the bottom bunion of your foot that every time you step just wedges itself deeper and deeper into your soul. And I mean both kinds of souls, the foot kind and the, the, the heart, body, mind kind. Why Why is Tim Pinkle a thing? Why do The we people demanded the- it. Just as the people demanded the man holding the deer at hump level across the screen. I find that more acceptable. You find, I mean, it is entertaining. It's entertaining. It had to get across the room. Yep. And maybe that was the only way he could properly hold it. I don't don't think so. I don't think that (laughs) was the best way to hold it. But all those excuses work better than the excuse that is Tim Pinkle. I, I think if you were to like ask someone their favorite moments in Twin Peaks and they were to give you that moment as one of their absolute highlights, the man carrying the deer at hump level. I think that it's a valid answer. The valid answer. Why do you have to keep... You could just say the man with the deer. We get it that he's at that level. Because I think the deer part isn't what makes it notable. <laughs> I think it's the way he's holding the deer. Yeah. That's that's not an accident. I'm not, like, making this obvious... I'm not, I'm not making this sound dirty. You look at the thing. Like, that's clearly what they're going for. I they're know. aiming low, so I'm going to recognize what they're doing. Anyway, the judges are discussing the qualities necessary to judge for Miss Twin Peaks. Again, I think it's strange that this wasn't already decided year after year. Apparently, they change every year, whatever, so yeah, on and so forth. I say the quality I look for a woman is... Uh, if their name rhymes with banana. <laughs> <laughs> Which is debatable because they keep saying Lana and Lana this whole episode, so who knows banana, what her name rhymes with. Banana, You can say it either way. Speaking of Lana... She uh she asks Dick Tremaine to help her find an important prop in the storage room. Yeah, she does. Something goes bump in the night. Something did happen. I just got to give props to Ian Buchanan, the actor who plays Dick Tremaine, because Dick Tremaine is just constantly ogling all these women, and obviously with Lana Milford is making all these moves or being moved upon. But the actor who plays him, uh, Ian Buchanan's gay, and as far as I can tell, he's only dated men. So to actually play this sort of weird weirdly perverse heterosexual character. I think he's doing a great job coming across that way. Uh, and, and how fun he must be having playing this part. Oh, that it it's, it's been fascinating with Dick Tremaine with his advances, if you will. And his lack of advances with this Lana situation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost as if like he is just semi playing dumb or if he's kind of like shocked, like, Oh God, the mayor's girlfriend is all over me. Dick Tremaine is a master at chess beyond even what Pete could imagine. <laughs> Dick Tremaine knows all the moves and knows everything all around him all at once. He's the Capablanca of our times. Well, Pete may have Capablanca on his side, but let's just face it. Dick Tremaine puts the mate in checkmate. Speaking of weird mating rituals. I hate myself for that. What was Pinkle trying to do with the plastic wrap umbrella performance? Like, I understand that there are probably, like, plastic fetishists out there who are into the idea of plastic rain gear and umbrellas as their specific level of kink. But beyond that... A very strange aesthetical choice. There's a lot of strange here. So first off, like the outfits on their own are harmless, but I still question them. It's like if you crossed one-eyed jacks and threw them through a lumberjack clothing company. The thing it reminds me most of, the plastic part of it, it reminds me, one, unrelated on Blade Runner, where Blade Runner is a character who is shot and is wearing plastic like that. Yeah, with a Female plastic- character. Okay, so she too is wearing the weird plastic yes. raincoats. The more Twin Peaks reference that I 
could try to stretch it to argue it is doing on purpose is that the famous line about Laura Palmer is that she's dead wrapped in plastic. So it could be the idea of they're all the women in Twin Peaks are wrapped in plastic, uh, which is very ominous and strange, but I, I wouldn't rule it out. I just think it's a bit of a stretch because nothing else about the situation reminds me of Laura Palmer beyond the plastic element. I like to think that Dick Tremaine can dress himself. He just cannot dress anyone else. I'm not sure that was Dick Tremaine's doing. Like Dick Tremaine was the one who was handling like the fashion show but prior. I feel like Pinkle. I want to blame Pinkle for this. I don't think Dick Tremaine would be caught dead recommending plastic like that. But he, he did recommend all those plaids. I think he recommended the plaid underneath the plastic. Mm. And then Tim Pinkle was like, you know what this needs? You know what this needs, Dick? Plastic. I, Just like how our world, all the natural beauty, it's overrun with plastic. That's actually probably what this is, isn't it? I it's plastic am, for environmentalism. I am going to say yes, so I don't have to speak to you any longer. <laughs> well, that's the podcast episode. There's nothing more to talk about. Certainly not the biggest section of our notes. Oh, no, that was Dick Tremaine to Pinkle. Oh, I think you're talking to me. Okay. I mean, oh, yeah, I totally knew. I was just testing you. <laughs> yep, that's what's going on I here. I can pull the plug that easily? You can. That's why they call you the unplugged professor. <laughs> no, no. So the log lady, speaking of Mr. Pingle, the Mr. Pingle's making moves on the log lady. And the log lady's shoving Mr. Pingle away. Hawk is standing oddly above everyone watching the whole events of the dance and the pageantry, just kind of standing locked in place. All above everyone else. Which like, I assume he's on He's on watch because of the whole Wyndham Earl situation. Yeah, but the oh fact yeah, that he he's is just, certainly on watch, if he, you know what I mean. Especially when we get later to uh, Lana's performance, he is especially watching. Yeah. <sighs> First, we have Lucy's performance, though, thankfully, uh, which is much more tasteful and much more talented than what Lana puts out. Uh, Kimmy Robertson, the actress who plays Lucy, I think does a great job with it, and it shows how like talented she is. That was pretty cool to see. Yeah, no, absolutely. She was stunning with her general movements, and overall, no, I, I was just fully impressed on how much charisma that she has on stage. It was. I, I wonder if they just like found out that like Kimmy Robertson can dance. Like, hmm, we can use this for the show, and just found a way to like spotlight the talent of their cast. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Bobby's in the background behind stage kind of staring at the girls as they walk by, appreciating the natural beauties of Twin Peaks. Even though he's made amends with Shelly, it feels like there's a little bit of that side of him that still needs to keep his eyes away. Um, and as he's looking, he notices the log lady over at the bar area, and then he kind of looks back, and then he notices the log lady suddenly behind him, like backstage, and he looks back to the bar, and Log Lady's no longer there, and he's curious Pinkle about that. Pinkle is also that. confused because he's, like, stumbling. Yes. Bobby decides to approach the Log Lady behind stage, because obviously she's not supposed to be back here, and he goes over there, at which point the Log Lady just decks him one with the log. Yeah, no, um, it was... Okay, so we go into this podcast assuming that someone has likely watched this episode along with us or uh, has seen this episode before. It's... When you get a chance to look at him, especially when he's climbing across the rafters, it's clearly Wyndham Earl in these ladder points. The thing that sort of confused me most and threw me off the most was probably the different shaped log. Mm -hmm. He just had a separate log, but somehow also made the original log lady disappear on the crowd. Um, it's, it's already a fascinating situation, but I fully was not noticing that when we were first watching it. 
And no, I thought the log lady turned. I thought like, oh God, this is the twisting point in Twin Peaks. This is where the log lady is ready to fight back. Oh, go log lady. She's taken back the nature from these heathens. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, and to me, I don't remember too well my first experiences. I feel like I figured out the Wyndham Earl part of it pretty quick. But for you, it sounds like there was a pretty decent amount of time where you were just lost thinking the log lady had gone rogue. It was dark. Like it was like the lights were always a little bit off and mm-hmm. I do appreciate that. It's just the physicality got me when he was crawling around. And well, I got to say, no, this is definitely Wyndham World's best disguise, 10 out of 10. But the problem is, is that the log itself was uh, very bad. So I've got to dock a few points because it wasn't, it was not even like a round log. It was like mm, a angled log. It's a pyramidal, per- pyramidal, p- pyramidical. Yep. Uh, tri- it's like a pyramid. It's a triangle shape. Triangular. Luckily, triangles aren't important in Twin Peaks. No, no, certainly no peaks happening there. Um, speaking, you mentioned earlier of physicality and the physicality of Windermill's movements as the log lady. Surely the audience was transfixed by the physicality of Lana's performance. You know, I'm going to say that I was more of a fan of Lucy's performance, Mm -hmm. but I do see the appeal with Lana Milford's performance. It's definitely got something around that age. I'm thinking of... The sort of styles of that genie show, I can't really think I of. Dream of Genie? I Dream of Genie. Uh, I can That's see. That's sort of like Western appropriation. Yeah. I can see. <laughs> I love can to s- see it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Uh, we already talked about Indiana Jones and everything yeah. with Kali and everything. Yeah, like yeah. That Lana, Lana definitely she- working into her contortionist jazz exotica. Some cultural elements that I don't think are from Lana's background specifically. It's not. And I do see the angle that they were going for, though. And I do mm. see. I would say a cultural touchstone more so on our side, more than any place exotic. I think that Mm -hmm. there's definitely an element where somehow when things come to America, exotic takes on almost a new word entirely. Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily have, I don't mean to diss on anything with like belly dancing. I'm sure that there's a lot of talent that goes into it, Yeah, but I can't say the performance with Alana really ever did a lot for me first viewing or returning viewing. Uh, they definitely, the Twin Peaks narrative is that every single man is immediately attracted to Lana's body and something about her charisma just lures them in. But I, I guess like if I strip that element away, I'm like, okay, <laughs> she did that on stage. Neat. I think that the actress definitely has a lot of fun with the role from what she is trying to give forward with this sense of charisma. I mm-hmm. think the camera angles set, certainly do a lot. But if I were seeing this performance, I would still be kind of looking back at Lucy who's like, that That had a lot of energy and charisma there. Yep. So I think Norma could see clearly which was the better performance. Uh, yes, and that was the performance coming after the belly dancing, and that was clearly Annie. I mean, Audrey. Audrey gave her speech first. Well, Audrey gave her speech, but we're talking about like how Norma had been... Audrey gave a nice speech, but I think that was just specifically for Cooper. Yeah, because she said (laughs) in her speech, when something you care about is in danger, you must fight to save it or lose it. And that was her last line before she joined Ben backstage. Yep. So, yeah, definitely that line feels very pointed. Pointed at the pointy head of Dale Cooper. Yeah, I get where it can't have a duality, but let's just face it. That was just like, Agent Cooper, remember, you gotta fight. You gotta do this. Mm -hmm. Get ready. And Ben's backstage, Audrey leaves... Donna then swoops in to talk to Ben. And this is the moment we kind of alluded to earlier where Donna asks Ben just flat out, like, what's going on? And Ben is like, we could talk about this later. We can get together and have a conversation. I'm trying to do this right. Please. Like, not right now. This is not the time or place, but I do want to tell you the truth. And Donna, again, she's playing into that role of the 
very, very assertive, aggressive teenager character who's like, no, I want to know right now what's going on. No one will tell me the truth. And Ben, when he hears that no one's going to tell her the truth, I'm sure flashing in his mind are the John Justice Wheeler words Mm -hmm. that you got to tell the hardest truth first. So Ben approaches, gets kind of close and says quietly, your mother and I. And at that moment, before he can really even finish, Donna's like, all right, this confirms it. She had like a disgusted gasp. You're my father. And then shakes her head, stomps off. And then that's where we play the Imperial Death March because she marches away. Da, 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 da. You know, you're my father. Truly the, the second most shocking reveal of a father in all of fiction. Uh, yes, truly. <laughs> and, you know, I, I will say at this juncture as well, because um, now it's been officially confirmed by the fiction that this is was, this was where this was leading. Before, I couldn't exactly say it. But I remember when I watched this show for the first time, not really liking this plot line because it felt very out of nowhere. Like, it just felt like an unnecessary non-problem to all of a sudden make this drama of who's the real parent. But kind of in hindsight upon this reviewing, I actually do like the Donna-Ben child angle because I think it really doesn't hurt anything. It's a non-issue before, yeah, but it actually shouldn't change anything. Doc Hayward is still Donna's father in the sense of raising her. The one it actually affects the most is Ben. I think it's a good example of a moral struggle that's a bit more complicated and more nuanced that is putting Ben in a position of challenging his morality and his moral code. And I think it's a way of writing into the script a moral challenge for him with consequences, with moral gray area, that further shows how much Ben was getting around in town to the women. We knew it's part of his character, but we didn't know it was entrenched within the Hayward family as well with Donna's mother. So I think that it fits Ben's character, and I think it doesn't really take anything away from Doc Hayward or Eileen. It actually brings Eileen back into the show. She'd been in the pit for most of the running, so actually getting her to be kind of talked about again in the narrative. Mm-hmm. I think it works, and it fits the soap opera mentality, obviously, too. Not to mention, like, looking back, if it is true that he is the father, like, there's some retroactive areas which kind of add a little bit of extra spice if you go back to Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. For example, with um, Donna confronting with Audrey, or there are moments in which, like, when Ben is talking about Laura Palmer, yeah. there's an idea that her best friend, the yes. one who's likely around her the most, is potentially his daughter. Yes. So, yeah, no, there are fun layers to add on top, if again mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to what you were saying earlier, Annie's speech was clearly the, the most successful one. Later, Dick Tremaine basically says that's what put her over Lana for the running. Yeah, which she's put above Lana in the Mm. running for Dick Tremaine because of that, despite everything that happened with Lana, which means that Dick Tremaine somewhere inside of him has a spine. That would be the idea, or a soul, a heart that was touched by Annie's I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) His spine was touched, like... I think that this this is my subjective reading, and and I know I've done a lot of joking, but I think I think I actually believe this reading. I think Dick Tremaine is someone who has pretty much no principles, but I think despite having no principles, he views himself as someone who needs to appeal to a higher status. I think the idea of fine wine, fine clothing, there's an allure and sophistication to them. Same with fancy words. And I think that the idea of higher and lower pleasures is something ingrained in him, even if he doesn't actually have a moral backbone. So I think that although he's enticed by Lana, I think at the end of the day, a beautifully written speech that he views as very poetic, that's the more gentlemanly thing. And I think that that mentality in his head of liking the finer things in life, that applies to wine, clothing, but also to words. And 
speaking of those words, mm-hmm. we're going into Annie's speech. And I got to say, I needed the second viewing to kind of almost attach to it. I'm getting used to Annie's sort of acting. Mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of liking her general candor. Mm-hmm. But when on stage and giving the speech, the way that it kind of drones at certain points mm-hmm. is where she's kind. Of, she ended up kind of losing me inside of the words. And mm-hmm. uh, the message didn't hit me until we watched it for a second time. Mm-hmm. So that... Yeah, that that's one thing that kind of bothered me. I, I can't say scene. I really felt the same way, but I could understand it. Mm-hmm. She she's not a natural speaker. She mentions how afraid she is of public speaking, yeah. and I think that that shows in the way she delivers. Mm-hmm. That uh, was she even looking down at a written speech? I think it was mostly memorized. No, it was. I think that it was just from her. Like, right. I, don't, I don't think she had much time to memorize. So uh, it was very wonderfully worded and very very on the. If, if it was on the spot, I mean, she was very quick to quote the Chief Seattle moment in there very, very well. She's good at quoting. Yes, she is. That's a part of her character. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was delivered very, very plainly, um, mm-hmm. not with a lot of embellishments, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, also might be part of her character, too. Yeah. Um, and the thing that she quotes from Chief Seattle, when the last red man vanishes from this earth, this forest will still hold their spirits. That's one of the key ideas in there. And she talks about how saving the forest will start with saving that part of ourselves that every day is dying inside of themselves. This part of themselves that they're denying that they need to lead behind a simple legacy. She calls them new warriors, mystic warriors who love the earth and try to save it. Um, and she says this while the log ladies above the rafters area kind of sneaking around all <laughs> sol- solid snake style. Yep. Um, I, I do think it's interesting bringing along the Native American angle. There is a little bit of that running currently throughout the show. Obviously, we don't know much about the Dugpas, but we do know the Nez Pierce with regards to Hawks culture and heritage that they knew about the white and black lodge and the idea of there being sort of like the, the people of the land before, you know, the Europeans moved in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so bringing up chief Seattle, bringing up the connection between indigenous peoples and the land, bringing up that those spirits linger within the forest and mm-hmm. within the land again, feels very prescient, but unlike Audrey's that felt very direct and pointed at Cooper, this feels more general and thematic toward the whole series the whole idea of everything going on. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's very interesting. And if anything were to be taken from this episode as kind of what's the point of Twin Peaks, I think you could point to what Annie's saying here about not letting that part of us die that appreciates simple pleasures and simple things in nature and wanting to protect them. Mm-hmm. That feels like kind of the end point of Twin Peaks. That's a very important idea. Protect your donuts, protect your coffee, protect your family, and protect the trees. Of course, the pine weasel is included in all of those things. Yes. No, I think that it definitely is a nice and heavy message that definitely touches the hearts of people, and I'm very fascinated by that perspective. And I also wonder, where are any of the Packards during mm-hmm. any of this situation? Because I don't know how they're going to yeah. really... <laughs> it doesn't seem like Ghostwood's getting much benefit sure. from like not being involved or any sort of counterstatements. But hey, at the they're, same they're time, dealing with a key. In at the, the same time, how much action are these words going to motivate? I mean, words are definitely powerful at times, but there's been plenty of movements throughout history, whether it's American history, it's more familiar to us, or just around the globe, mm-hmm. where large social movements and activism don't translate to much when corporate interests are involved. Perhaps not, but I'm believing more so in the heart of the fiction and how sure. like involved some of these people do get. I mean, and- Andrew and Catherine have already established that Ben basically made it easy for them. They've, he's cleared <laughs> the way. He's his own worst enemy. Ben made it already like cleared a way to do this. Mm-hmm. So the question is, is it too late, or can Ben stop it? We don't even know if Ben is stopping it 
for pure motivations or impure motivations, what purity even means anymore. Um, The last thing that happens before we really start going crazy with everything in the pageant is Lucy announces the verdict of D-Day. She pulls in Andy and Dick Tremaine, who both seem to have forgotten that this was even happening. Yep, that's the day. It was on the tip of my tongue, just like Lannister. That's a brand of something. Anyway, how are you? So Lucy reveals then that no matter who the biological father is, that she is going to choose Andy as the father of the child in a move that I'm sure surprises no one watching this right now. Clearly, it's been leaning that way for quite a while. Um, and Andy is honored by the decision, but he pro- he promises to be a great father, but he has to go fight Agent Cooper right now. So he just like runs off immediately, leaving Lucy disgusted and just saying, Men with a diagonal wipe across the screen. Yes. Shortly after that, oh, by the way, do you have any thoughts on the Lucy Andy Dick situation? Um, other than the little Nikki doesn't exist anymore. I'm sure that Dick Tremaine probably has a few um, hands and other honey pots at Ugh. the moment. <laughs> what? Well, I'm trying to think of like sweet things, and I thought of Winnie the Pooh. I'm just saying, Hannah Honeypot. <laughs> anyway, Andy, not Andy. So Andy announced Miss Two Twin Peaks, and Cooper... <laughs> Andy is announced as Miss Twin Peaks. It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> Me? So Andy is announced new Miss Twin Peaks, and Cooper is warily clapping, slow, hesitant claps. He kind of looks around him, realizing the potential weight of what's going on. Uh, Dwayne decrying this, saying that she's only been here for 15 minutes. Which is the best best portion from his life. It's a great today. line because it is true. It she is. has only been in Twin Peaks basically 15 <laughs> minutes. If you were to add up all the Annie content, we maybe have a half hour. <laughs> maybe. Uh, but yeah, Dick Tremaine said he liked the speech the most. Obviously, Norma seemed to concur as being the second judge who must have backed this up. Shortly after that, the lights shut off. Uh, no epilepsy warning, but there probably should have been. It was it was the time period where I guess they weren't uh, doing those warnings as much. But the light flickering very, very aggressively. Yeah, uh, epilepsy warning. Uh, would have been nice. Would have been nice, but overall, uh, have you ever been in any of those sort of situations? I, like, I don't think I have. Light? I've been to a couple of horror houses, and uh, I've seen a room similar to that. Time feels like it slows mm-hmm. down. It's very disorienting to everything in the body. And the fact that everyone can run around with such almost i'd call ease like trying to get out of the way mm-hmm. i'm fully impressed i was i was thinking that everyone's going to fall over all the tables and knock over mm-hmm. three glasses of dick tremaine's wine that he had set up for himself that's my canon the red white red <laughs> line it, it it's it's crazy man uh, I think the only one who really fell down that we could tell was Nadine after she got hit by a sandbag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the end, like, I don't really... I, I had a hard time believing that because, personally, I don't think a sandbag can take out Nadine. I think the only thing that can take out Nadine is Nadine, so... Well, maybe the sandbag was filled with Nadine. Khalil. Yes? Khalil, think about what you just said. Yeah, a bag of Nadine hit Nadine. I- And knocked her out. How am I supposed to interpret that? Doc Hayward leading Annie away, but unfortunately the log lady, who is actually Wynn Nomuro, looking around, excited. He makes explosions happen all around that stops Cooper's progress. And we don't really, I don't think we have to see what happens to Doc Hayward, but somehow Wynn Nomuro is able to get to Annie. Doc Hayward was a level one enemy, I guess. He (laughs) he knocked him out with the log probably or something, right? So Wynn Nomuro- Doc Hayward should have brought his chainsaw hands. He should have brought his chainsaw hands. (laughs) You always bring your chainsaw hands to a party. Um, (laughs) Wyndham Earl, you know, says, I will help you. And then presumably chloroform rag 
mm-hmm. on her face. Mm-hmm. Something that as Annie's screaming, you know, she's being dragged away. And shortly after Annie presumably is dragged away, the lights actually return. Cooper immediately gains consciousness of the events, tells Truman that, you know, that he tells Truman that Windermere has Annie. And Truman very confidently puts the hand on the shoulder. We'll get him. We promise we got this. And in this kind of haze and confusion, Andy's finally able to get to Cooper and tell him that the map is a map. He knows the location. And that is the note that the episode ends on. Oh, boy. So now it's a race to the lodges. Overall. Love and fear. Who shall be the victor? Overall, how do you feel this episode, whether you call it Miss Twin Peaks or the Night of Decision, how do you feel this episode handled setting up the end? I think that it did a pretty good job because now everything is at its final stakes. Everyone is going to probably have a hard time trying to work to set stakes. Um, And I don't know what the heck's going to go on with absolutely everyone. Khalil, from what you have told me, the next episode should be a longer one. It is. And that makes me wonder how much they're going to try to tie up. Because when I think to myself, like... Could they have the chase and try to work things out and try to save Annie mm-hmm. in half that time? Probably. What is in this episode? We will have to wait and find out, Professor. Ah. <laughs> yes, are you, are you good there? I've got a lot of things in my head that I, mean, I can't express until we're done. Exciting. Well, going by your logic, you know, every episode gets better than the last one. So this was your favorite episode of Twin Peaks. But <laughs> statistically speaking, the next one, the last one of the OG series will be your favorite episode of all time. I think that whenever episodes get better and better, favoritism is something that only happens as everything is digested. Fair so enough. I've had, I've had a time for it to digest for myself. You may need the same amount of time. Yep, I will need years. Uh, that is fair. That <laughs> is very fair. Just as Jacoby will be investigating the Laura Palmer situation for years to come in his own way, uh, although we've heard nothing about that ever since he said it, but I believe him. I believe him. No one should believe Dr. Jacoby. We, too, shall be investigating Twin Peaks in our own ways for years to come. I have a wonderful and strange question of the week for you, Mr. Professor, sir. Mr. Professor Dr. Mann is here to stay. What's up? Who is your personal Miss Twin Peaks? Oh, that's easy. I I would really want that out of all the contenders that Mm -hmm. were happening there. um, I'd want Lucy. Not Mm -hmm. only do I think that it's very awesome that a woman is so talented and she is very dedicated and gung-ho about this, but I also would like to see a mother figure uh, being presented Mm -hmm. with this prize, if you will, this 20th anniversary prize. I do not know about the other 19 contestants. Mm -hmm beyond it but yeah i think that that's a a lot uh not to mention i kind of wish we did have more talents other than dancing Mm -hmm. i wish that we saw more people that'd been really cool but oh well yeah it would have definitely extended the episode or something would have had to get cut yeah probably who's yours uh you know my personal miss twin peaks has always been shelly uh Absolutely, 100% on Shelly's side here. Uh, If I had to give some sort of defense for it, which it's mostly an illogical preference, but if I were to give a preference, I think that it'd be very nice and thematically equivalent that on the anniversary of Norma earning Miss Twin Peaks, that she should pass on the torch to Shelly, who is very much like a daughter to her. I think that having sort of that potential income source will help out Bobby and Shelly as they move forward with their lives in a post-Leo Johnson, post-kerfluffle of their whole lives mess, Get their act together a little bit better. It's a good start. Now, here's my Twin Peaks question of the week. Oh, Uno verse card on you. What, then, would be Shelly Johnson's talent, since we didn't get to see her talent portion of the show? 
I want to see her do celebrity impersonations <laughs> because I remember when she was impersonating different things when they were leading up to Miss Twin Peaks, she was like making fun of those different voices of like how she would answer questions. And she was doing like this whole act about it. I would like to see her go up there and do like celebrity impressions that are like super dated by our standards that only people from like 1991 would understand. <laughs> I want those. This was a scene we needed. This was the Shelly Johnson we needed, mm -hmm. but oh well. And plus to see the actress kind of like flex her acting prowess and like do a bunch of cool faces and cool voices. Heck yeah. Well, Khalil, the end is in sight, at least for season two, because we're still going to be doing the podcast for a bit, but specifically the end of this Blu-ray set. The end of the original Twin Peaks. Any final words? I will have a lot of them in the next episode. Not the answer you were looking for. Nope. <laughs> but hey, that's our podcast. No, 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 no we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs>